Well, we are talking about justice, and um, I believe it's something that's deep within all of us. I actually believe it's built in, and I never really had this thought until I had children. And I'll never forget, and I don't like to use my children as sermon examples, but I'm doing it. Um, My youngest daughter, Kate, she must have been no more than two years old, maybe even younger, where something was happening in our family. Her sister probably got extra food or something, and she didn't get it. And she looked at me, and she said, it's not fair. And I'm like, wow, two years old. She's already figured out justice. It's not fair. And she just didn't say it wasn't fair. She said it like eight times. And when she did, she crossed her little hands like this, right? She goes, it's not fair, right? And so, and all I could think of as a father at that point is that you can't figure out how to get dressed. <laughs> you can't figure out when to go to sleep. You can't figure out, we, you're still in diapers, You can't figure out the basic things in life, but there was a bellwether clarity about fairness. So there's something within our souls, there's something within us that we all cry out for justice, right? Um, I hear this within the friendships that I have, within um, the media that I, you know, that I take in. Sometimes there's different terms used. I've had friends and conversations when something has happened kind of tongue-in-cheek said, well, I believe the universe will basically bend in that direction. Like somehow, somewhere, maybe there's a fairness that the universe will pay somebody back, right? Um, I've heard people use the term in, in the same way, the term karma, right? Oh, you know, it's like somebody cut me off. Like, well, karma will get that person. What they're describing it's actually the biblical view of, of justice. We want, we want God to come in and, and individually, you know, personally, right, make a right a wrong, not just in a long arc. In fact, John Lennon, actually, kind of understanding of the deeper version of what uh, the truer definition of karma came up with his own word. He, he called it instant karma, right? Instant karma is going to get you. And um, because the, because uh, because we, I believe we all long for that. We all long to live in a just world. And um, even, even Paul in Romans, when he's talking about, um, you know, um, things, things being right and becoming reconciled to God, he actually uses the term that the whole earth groans in anticipation for this, the brokenness that we feel individually as a community and even physically the world. Right? So this is, this is a thing that as church, we don't just put it, uh, we, we, we can't put it just on the side and say it's just a category, that it's integrated into every part of us because it's integrated into every part of our community. It's integrated into every part of, uh, of our families, right? The conversations that we have, the, right, the hard things we go through are based in our idea of justice. Um, now, some of you might know or not know um, is that I, for the last 10 years, have worked in justice-type ministries. The last two years, I was the executive director of the Bering Anti-Trafficking Coalition, where we worked to, um, to, um, to end um, uh, sex and labor trafficking throughout the Bay Area. And most trafficking is fought on a regional level. Uh, there's very few national organizations. Um, uh, because of the 
Uh, and so the Barry Anti-Trafficking has been, been around in one of the, uh, just a, a one, wonderful organization that I'm still on the board of. Um, and before that, I spent 10 years in the Tenderloin with the underserved with City team. And so uh, most of my, uh, uh, most of the things that I'll talk about before come from that place of, of, ser of being, uh, being with God in those communities and how he works and how he doesn't work. Now, before we get going, and especially in this series, um, I, wanted to, I, I wanted to kind of point out one of the issues that I see, and I see it sometimes specifically uh, within, uh, within our communities and even within the church, and it's the idea of the word justice. Uh, when we talk about justice, there are many, it's like we're using the same word, and, um, and everybody is using it with a different, sometimes, definition of how they see justice. Sometimes we, we use the word justice in it, uh, meaning completely different outcomes. So we're saying the same word, but we're, we're actually, you know, pointing in different directions. And in the process, it's the same way. And some, sometimes it can be a term that's, that's very much politicized. And so when we talk about justice, sometimes in the church, we just go, oh, do, let's not talk about this. Why? Because it's this knot of thoughts and, it, you know, if you ever worked on something trying to pick it up, you know, trying to get something loose, it just feels overwhelming. And you're like, look, we just spent all this time and it doesn't look like we've made any difference. And sometimes I feel that. But that's not God's call on our life. Now, I want to start with an overview of justice. And just to kind of unloosen the knots, and, and, and it's just a, it's a theory for thought, I want to use Tim Keller. Um, he wrote a white paper on this, and I just want to use this as a guide because if you're interested, Google Tim Keller views of justice, and his white paper will come up, and it's, it has a little bit more definition to it. If you're interested, there's a lot of jump pla places for you to jump um, and read even some books that he kind of takes from um, and in references, uh, references to. But but what Keller, um, what Tim does is he takes, takes those views and looks at them in four very traditional ways. And you start to understand why when we talk about things, you'll see that we use, sometimes use those things interchangeably. And so the first view is a libertarian view, which would be, which would be kind of more individualist or sometimes if we said politically on the far right. A libertarian is justice is about freedom. A just society promotes individual freedom. It's highly individualistic. It doesn't embrace the biblical obligation to community or systemic broken systems like poverty. But it is all about, so some people talk about justice in these terms, and we hear this even now in our society, right? The highest justice is me, right, is, is our individual rights, right? The second view would be, um, still based in the individual freedom, would be the libertarian view. And, uh, or the, uh, the, uh, the, the liberal view, and that's fairness. A just society promotes fairness for all. And there's a lot, um, there's a lot that as a Christian I would agree with in this, um, in this view. But, um, but in this view, um, in liberal societies, they've not been able to balance the freedoms to obligation also to family or to bigger, uh, bigger groups. Um, they believe in the, uh, in, in the, uh, rights of the individual very strongly in that, in that every person has dignity, but they've moved away from that being based in Scripture. So there's no place 
Uh, they, you know, this view says this is great, but we're instead of talking about morals, instead of the religious people, biblical, that has to stay at the door. We're just gonna we're gonna speak about this just within terms of rights. So this is why even in our society we have a lot of talks about what are the rights of somebody, right? And um, and so um, and so the the liberal view it's always about right um, it has a has a, a real emphasis on rights claims. Right now, um, they've borrowed a lot again from the um, from the Christian faith. But again, there's no moral absolutes, and um, and again, we're, we're uh, and um, and everybody is free to kind of pursue their own version of good because it's still based on individual rights. And then we have everybody's different definition of what good is, and that's where in our society we have a lot of disagreements. Right? Um, then we have the um, Moving, uh, moving towards the left, we have the utilitarian view. Happiness, a just society, promotes the most happiness. You know, the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. And this is use the, uh, you know, the harm principle, do no harm. Or what's the least amount of harm that we can do for the greatest number of people, right? So we starts, it starts to put into a larger number of people. Um, the issue here is that the majority, uh, the majority of people is usually sometimes a really bad guy, guide if you get rid of, uh, if we get rid of uh, morals, if we get rid of, you know, absolute, you know, something that's good or bad. So, so many of the things that have happened, for instance, like Jim Crow laws, were done with this, inv- with, with this maybe in mind, right? This does the most amount of good for our society, yeah, but it takes a, one group in our society, and it places them in a really hard spot. And so, um, um, and um, uh, lots more with that, but I'll, I'll continue moving on. And then the last one is the postmodern power. A just society subverts the power of the dominant group in favor of the oppressed, right? And so this, uh, and in this view, um, your group identity is absolutely the most important part, but it also undermines um, humanity's common image of God, and it denies sinfulness, and even has different real definition of what is human flourishing, Right? And as my, one of my favorite author, um, Miroslav Wolf, talks about, he goes, within this view, it is almost impossible to have reconciliation between groups, you know. And so uh, there's a number of issues that, uh, that as, as Christians, as we look at this, that this runs into. And all of that being said, and again, the temptation in here is that to go through these. But I just wanted to do a really quick flyover, if, if we can, you know, bring that... Um, that graph back up, is to understand that many times in a conversation, right, we'll have, I'll be in a conversation, and someone will say something that literally sounds like a very individualistic, liberal argument, and then a minute later in the conversation, they'll make an argument that is very much a postmodern argument. So even with injustice, they're actually making two different arguments and oftentimes then says, well, maybe the solution is a utilitarian solution. And, and so this becomes very confusing because there are people that, are, that really understand where their view of justice comes from. And sometimes as Christians, we can say, what category should we as Christians fit into if these are four, right? And th- these are not the only four. Let me just say this. this is, again, the simplistic kind of view of it. You know, oh, maybe we should, maybe we should just land in one of these views, and, and, you know, but as Christians, that's not what we're called to. And in fact, the idea also is that Christian is the fifth view. Let's just say on this way. That's not, that's not it either. See, as, 
See, as people, as we talk about kingdom justice, right, kingdom justice is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. And as a culture, um, it's important that we have these discussions, and as Christians that we're involved, as people of faith, we're involved in those discussions. But kingdom justice is not this utopian idea. It's not taking the Old Testament principles and saying, we're going to, right, we're going to make a, a you know, a, a religious America that will bring justice for all as, as Scripture, you know, as Scripture puts it out. You think about, you think about the Father giving us his heart on justice, understanding every different culture, right? And it's not like here is the way, one, we're, we're all going to be the same. It's, it's not uniformity. And so the beautiful thing about kingdom justice is it works very different for a tribe, for a, you know, a, very, you know, a very isolated tribe in Papua New Guinea to right, a, right, an industrialized country you know, in a post-industrialized country. And yet at the same time, it speaks with the same authority into each, into, into all, of, all of those places. And so I wanted to do an over, overview to say, no, our job as Christians isn't to figure out which one we land in and then agree and fight for it. Our job as, as people that follow, that follow the Father is that we are to be completely peculiar. And this has been my experience. In other words, with the... I agree. I find myself sometimes standing locked arms with people that have all of these views. I have partnered with other organizations and said, yes, I agree with you. Then they say, then we're going to do this. And I go, no, I'm, I don't agree with that. And they go, well, really, why not? Or I agree with their outcome. We want to see this. And I go, yes. And they go, and therefore we're going to do this. And I go, no, we can't do that. And they go, really? Well, how come? You know? That we're to be these people that are particular in that sense. Because the Father is guiding us. And we believe His justice and what He wants to bring, right, uh, we, is, is, the, is, is justice that is complete, right? And so let me just talk about what those descriptive principles are. And again, uh, there's people have written great books on this. And now you're, I'm just going to hit three or four of them, just the highlights to say this is what makes, this is what makes a kingdom justice, uh, it, it differentiates it. The first one is this, kingdom justice is founded in the image of God. One of the first passages in Scripture that we see in Genesis, Cain and Abel, God comes to Cain and says, where's your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? And he gets it wrong. God says, yes, you are your brother's keeper. You see, we are all made in the image of God. I can't tell you how foundational this is to every great place of justice, that every person has human dignity. This is where equality comes from, right? That every person, every culture, right, that this is, they are made by the hands of God. This is what toppled kings because all of a sudden, right, it was people of faith that said, wait a minute, you're a king. You're no more, you are made in God's image just like I am. You have no more special privileges. You need to also submit to, to the same God that we submit to. Every work we do, 
every great idea that we, we, we have as a, as a community and a culture comes out of this. Even in Scripture, it says the same laws that when God set it up. By the way, in Israel, the same laws that you have, they're the same laws that we have for foreigners. There's no special privilege even for people inside, right? It's the uh, inside of, of the is, is Israel family thousands of years ago. God said it, there is this place of equality because he's made all all people. Deuteronomy 10 said this way, says it this way. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. That's in Deuteronomy, the second law. In other words, in, in this society, understand that if you, did, if you were a widow or an orphan, where everything worked, if you would, in tribes and families that owned land, that did businesses, you, were, you had no way to support yourself long term. You were always in the margins and in between. And God said, oh, and by the way, part of our, right, part of this is that these people, they're made in God's image, right? Working with the homeless, people would see this. You'd meet somebody and they had given up on themselves for whatever reason. He says, well, how how do we work with them? And I go, this is how we work with them. They're all made in God's image. They are as special, they are as important as any of us. And just because they might have forgotten it, and other people in society say they're not as important, we as, we as people of faith, we knock that away and say they're as important as anybody else because they're made in God's image. That was, that was one of the other questions I get. Don't you, ever, don't you ever get tired? I go, you get tired if you feel like it's your responsibility to lift somebody up out of poverty if they're in poverty. Or to make somehow they're like, I, I, none of us have that, those sorts of resources or power. But to work with somebody and say, my job is to love them, to be with them, to honor them, to respect them because they're made in God's image. You can do that all day. And that's, um, and that's why, um, and, and, and that's why the, Im- the image of God when it comes to doing this is so, fo- is so foundational. Um, Within, our, within my work with, um, uh, in the anti-trafficking, um, I'll tell you, 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 you hear these, you see and experience horrifying stories. And you start to get angry. So you see these people that are, um, for lack of better words, pimping young, let's say within sex trafficking, very young girls out. And they get caught. And your first reaction is you're angry. You're like, what should we do? And you're just like, oh, man. This is like what this guy did to this 14-year-old girl is you just can't imagine. And, um, and then you start to realize because of the image of God that you go, wait a minute. You, over time, you start to hear their stories and you realize most of them have been absolutely broken too. They did not get there by accident. And you don't excuse the, the harm that they've done but your force because of God's justice and the image of God is to place that person into a place where you say, I have compassion on them. I don't agree with them, but I will not make them, I will not make them the enemy. I will still see them as, um, as somebody made in God's image that has ultimate value even though they've done tremendous harm to a number of people. Right? And this becomes the thing is that instead of demonizing the pimp, you go, okay, how do we reach out to them? And one of my partners used to go to San Quentin and actually interview people that came out of this life. And so many of them were very, 
you couldn't believe the things they would say and the advice that they would give because they had enough time to reflect. Many of them had changed their ways. And again, it doesn't excuse that. And so what we always do because of the image of God, we, it's this idea that Jesus ultimately, as Christians, Jesus stands in our place, and therefore we stand in the place of others. We're always looking out for the other, right? There's no, there are no classes within our hearts of hearts with people, right? Um, and that comes from... Uh, that comes from uh, the deep belief that God's fingerprints are on everybody. And we see that God cares for each of those people, for each of those groups, for each of those families. The second thing is, is that kingdom justice is led by generosity. And this is this crazy Christian idea that God owns everything. Now, the ver- these are the very first stories we hear about the church, right? That... Um, that they gave things away to take care of other people, right? There was a sacrifice there, right? And it's this picture that when God describes, like in the Old Testament, he describes the righteous. And how he describes the righteous is this. They always take care of society. They take care of the community, right? The righteous sacrifices, right, for the community. Uh, The righteous gives to the community, where the wicked, they use the community for their own selfish good. And so that is one of the themes, if you, go through, if you go through a lot of the wisdom literature, as we say, that's always one of the themes, right? And so God's plan, when he lays this out, he goes, what is God's plan for, for generosity? He goes, this is what Israel should be. And so if you, you go through it, he says, you know, there should be these cities of refuge that people that are in trouble can run to and be safe, right? And then um, you have to, um, if you look at the geography of Israel, it was this very small sliver of land, that connects Europe, Asia, and, and, and Africa. It is the land trade route, right? And they're this peculiar people because they, are mono, they believe in one God where everybody else in the world at that time believed in many gods. And they said, by the way, when people pass through your land, right, sojourners, people that are coming through, uh, agricultural, and it's a very still big agricultural area, you don't pick the end of your crops because that's for everybody. That's how you give back. For your workers, for those who don't have much, they can just come. Those trees on the end that face the roads, those are for everyone. That's built into it, right? The generous people, right? They even had uh, in loans. There would be no surety. There's no interest on loans. If you let somebody borrow, you borrow without trying to get from them. We're just going to take care of each other, right? Every 50 years... Debts were wiped out. Land went back to the original families. Everybody's like, oh, really? Like, yeah. There would be no monopolization. This was, this was God. It, it was about, you, just, you could just feel within God's systems, even within Israel, saying, right, be generous. Isaiah 1 says this, Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. The widow and the orphan, again, constantly used. The ones who are, the ones in, in, in that society that were the least of these. And God says, God says, always be generous with them, right? You're always advocating for the powerless. 
right? And so when people would come down and we'd serve in, um, we'd ser- uh, we'd serve in San Francisco, I would always say, as we go into the homeless hotels to serve them, I want you to ask a question as we're on the streets. If you meet somebody, you get into a conversation. It's a dangerous question about generosity because when you ask the question, there's, um, it's implied that you might have some reciprocity here. I would always tell them, be brave and ask this question, is there anything you need? Right? Now, I say that because for, for a number of reasons. One is that your responsibility isn't to solve every one of their problems. I was walking t- one time, and the guy, um, you know, a guy in downtown Seattle said, hey, uh, and I know he's going to ask me for, you know, his panhandling. And he said, hey, can, you wouldn't... You wouldn't have an extra hundred thousand dollars, would you? <laughs> and me and my friend started laughing because he goes, hey, "I just thought I'd go large if I was going to ask." But we're kind of afraid he's going to ask us for something, and are we going to have to? Oh, should I get this person a hotel room for the night? Right? Any any of those kind of big questions, right? And so it comes down to resources. So we let's not let's just not even go there. But I say go there because half most of the time, the people of the underserved communities will rarely ask you for those things. It was actually a learning principle that we, what we would do is you would say that, and they would say, yeah, do you, you know, they would, they would ask you for something else. Could you help me get this in my apartment? Like, yeah, I could do that, right? Hey, would you, I, I, I don't move so well, could, could you run down and get this from the store for me, right? Or they would go, I know this is funny, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't have any animal crackers, would you? And I go, why? They go, those are my favorite. I just haven't had them in a long time. And I said, and if they ask you for something, I go, do it. <laughs> and you'd have groups get excited. They would go out and do it. But sometimes it's just that concern. This is the same question we should be asking everybody. Is there anything I could help you with? Do for you? This is, it's the attitude of generosity. There's a lot of wealthy people that need something more than their wealth. There's a lot of people that are underserved. Nothing was greater in, in this generosity place of going to some place thinking, I'm coming, I'm coming from the suburbs and to serve somebody, and they realize when they get there that the people that they're serving have something to give to them. And many times they have so much more to give to them. Right? Um, historically, um, these have been the best stories of the Christian faith of people with resources and time and talent sacrificing for others. Kingdom justice is also is differentiated by sacrifice. Right? It's not only about generosity in the image of God, it's also about sacrifice, right? It's it's if you would a teeter-totter, right? We see Jesus doing this like let's say with Zacchaeus. Jesus loses ground so Zacchaeus can gain ground socially. So in every area of life we're willing to lose because Jesus loses for us. He sacrifices all, so we sacrifice for others on whatever level. So there's a teeter-totter, and the idea is that, and I know it's going to sound silly, but you feel like God fills us up so much that when we sit on the teeter-totter, we become not only generous but even to the place of sacrifice, and that it always, always will will be that place where I'm willing to sacrifice somebody's time and talent. Yes, we will take care of your children. We will take somebody in. We will sacrifice financially. I will give time to this. These are the beautiful stories of our Christian faith 
If you go back and you look at many kind of ministries that you might admire, almost all of them will start with sacrifice. And that becomes the, um, the uh, sort, of, sort of, one of the one of the themes that I would see when people would come down to serve the, un- when you'd come down to work with the underserved, is I would say, by, by the way, you need, you need them more than they need you, right? And this is how many times God speaks to us. He doesn't speak to us a lot of times within our own echo chamber, but it's by that sacrifice that, um, that he speaks highly. And, and when, you look at, when you look at some of the great things that have happened um, that I've seen Christian lead, you, you, you know, that kingdom justice has made a huge difference in the world, Right? talk about hospitals, you talk about education, universities, even down to what Sunday school is, right? Sunday school originally was, you know, back 100, 100 um, over 150 years ago, was about teaching, teaching young children that would never get the opportunity to read, to read in basic education because the school systems uh, weren't nearly as developed as they are now, right? Our civil rights, people right now working with the poorest of the poor, the end of slavery. Um, when I when I worked uh, in my in with abolitionist movement, I actually took the California certified class out of the governor's office. And right in the middle of this class on the history of slavery and what we do is a, oh by the way, it was evangelical Christians that ended slavery. Slavery was every country every right <laughs> every century as far back as we know existed. And um, I won't go into it now, but it's a beautiful story of just normal church people in England saying, this has to stop. And it was, it was a hundred, hundred year battle. People giving up their fortunes to make it stop. That's the heart of God's justice. It's, it's sacrifice. People lost, and, and in that fight, people lost um, social standing. They sacrificed money. And we are now much more the beneficiaries of it. Now, again, we know that slavery didn't completely go away, but we do know that a lot of systemic slavery was ended by, the, by, the, um, by many of the countries that were in power. And lastly, we come to the fourth part. Kingdom justice, trust. It trusts that Jesus brings complete justice. This is where our faith is really strange and a lot of our neighbors won't understand us. But we believe, Jesus says this, that God is this big. We believe in a God that's not, uh, that's not just a hero from a Marvel universe, like with great powers that can come in and kind of swoop down and save us part of the time, right? We believe in a God that is, um, that is outside of time, that knows everything, Jesus said it this way, Luke 12, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Matthew 12, I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on that day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Jesus says, God, why don't you bring your justice? And God says, oh, I'm going to bring justice. Every word, not just every action, every word, every unspoken word, God goes, everything will be brought correctly. And this is where I have a hard time even in my mind saying, God, how do you bring justice and how will you make up for the person that had this happen to them, that spent a lifetime in this sort of 
you know, terrible situation, cultures that had this happen to them. And what we believe is God says in, the, in, the, in eternity, I will make everything right. And as Christians, we trust that. And it doesn't lead us to say, oh, God has it. We're fine. We can just walk away and just kind of worry. No, it's the opposite. It causes us to say, God, how do we partner with you going forward? Because you're going to make everything right. We, God calls us. The difference between uh, the four of you is a descriptive, not prescriptive. The difference is that um, we partner with Jesus. We're his hands and feet. God, where do you want to work? And then we become some of the greatest beneficiaries of that. We give it all away, and we go, that was the greatest thing that ever happened. Rather than, take it, than, than to keep, keep everything that God's given us. We are, we are God's hands and feet. God does not call us to be his administrators of justice. That's when we get into disagreement. Right? Some Christians are like, we're here to take a stand. Like, no, 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 we're here to serve. Again, Jesus puts down all of his godhood to come to earth, all of his power. Therefore, we take all of our power, we put it down, and we, we, lo- we love people. Because again, love and power are opposites. You can't love and hold power over somebody. So what does God do with all power? He goes, I love these people. I'm going to set my godhood aside and come down to love them. This is the justice of God. Um, you will never know the small steps that you take. And I've seen this. I don't know how many nonprofits in the Bay Area that we've seen start off of somebody volunteering, getting involved, starting to understand, going upstream and saying, I, wanted, I, I think I want to start this. Right? There are just over, there are about 50 nonprofits in the Bay Area just working in the anti trafficking field, the field that, uh, one of the fields I know. Half of them are Christian organizations, probably rule of thumb. In the United States, it's probably even more, right? If um, tonight you're homeless and you're eating in San Francisco, 90% chance you're eating at a Christian ministry. And so this advertising that you might hear that somehow, oh, Christians are hypocrites, never use this as an argument. This is not an apologetic, but this is an encouragement God wants to use you and I. He wants to use us in this field. Yeah. I had, um, we had two women that started washing people's feet in San Francisco. These two older women, the quietest women, they probably taught, I don't know, maybe a thousand people to wash feet. And those thousand people probably washed tens of thousands of people's feet to the place where in our ministry, the city of San Francisco would ask us to come down to events and wash people's feet. Because two retired women thought that this was what God was calling them to. And they did it. I'll just end with this story. My friend, I have a friend, Phil Smith, who worked with orphans, and in the late 80s, he heard, um, he heard a story about um, orphans in Brazil, street kids being killed, literally. They were abandoned. They were called throwaway kids. And he said, he prayed about it, and he said, God, God said, go, go check it out. So he told one of his friends, and one of his friends was a businessman. He had a lot. He goes, here, I'll give you some miles, and I'll book a trip. So he booked a trip and he put him in, 
he, he booked a trip, he put him in first class with his miles. So he goes, I'm sitting in first class, I wasn't used to that. And he says, I'm just going down to see if any of these stories are true. Back then, the right, information moved in a different way. On the plane ride down, he's sitting next to this man, they have the conversation, he goes, what are you doing? He tells him, he says, oh, that's interesting. He goes, you know, my family owns a piece of land just outside of San Paulo in Capinas. He goes, you know, they have some buildings on it. They haven't used it. Maybe they'll give it to you. Within two days, the family had gifted him that property. And that property has been the home um, of an orphanage. And then that orphanage um, has doubled and tripled. It's called Hope Unlimited. And they have, um, and they have reached out to thousands and thousands of, 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 of students over the years, housing them, working with them. It's an amazing ministry, but it just started with a simple step. As we go through this series, may God use us individually as a family to do His work of justice. This is a big topic. Um, I, I know uh, so much of this morning, I wanted to encourage us. Um, I, I didn't want to discourage you with just being overwhelmed. Um, I hope you'll go to Keller's website and his papers and read that and be thoughtful. But if you're a parent tonight, today, what's, what's the story that God wants to build in your family of serving and giving to, to others to be part of his? You're going into retirement. What does God want to do with your retirement years? You're a student. Like students, like what would God shape in you now that might change the trajectory of what you would do with your profession? first step is really easy. Just take the next year or two to say, God, who do I need to meet? Where are you calling me to? Those who seek God, we find him. But this is the heart of God. The heart of God is for us, is that he, he desires for us to be his hands and feet. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have reached out and that uh, to so many, and we are all probably in many ways that we don't understand, beneficiaries of your beautiful justice. And we take comfort in the fact that you're going to bring everything into account. So let us, with your passion, uh, join you to free people that are locked away, to be the voice of people that might not have a voice, to use our time, our talents, our treasures to come to you with our hands out and say, everything we have is yours, Jesus. What do you want to do with it? And might you lead us in a way um, as a church and as, a, and as families uh, deeper in to joining you and loving you and walking with you. And we ask this, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.